Beyond politics and above religion, a moral authority exists known globally as the ageless wisdom. It's the study of consciousness, the mystery of awareness, which cannot be measured, yet will not be denied. This podcast from Michael Benner's Wisdom of the Soul class features weekly lessons in metaphysics, mysticism, and esoteric philosophy. Those who attend live and free of charge on Zoom may also participate in group meditation and Q&A. Register for our newsletter at michaelbenner.com. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Benner. Well, good morning from California, and thanks for joining us for uh, today's episode of the Wisdom of the Soul class. Happy to be here. Today we're going to pick up where we left off last week, and if you weren't here, or if you haven't yet seen the uh, video on YouTube or heard the podcast, we were talking about mystical traditions through history, from uh, shamanism through Egyptian hermetic philosophy, how that led to um, Judaism and Jewish mysticism in particular, and how Christianity and Christian mysticism came out of that, and how Islam and Sufism came out of that, the relationship of Sufism in particular, and, well, I would say Christian mysticism to some degree, to Neoplatonism is something I don't think we touched on, so I'll go back and pick up on that. Then we talked about the Eastern religions, and which are mystical and which are not, like uh, Buddhism and Taoism are really not considered mystical, but uh, Hinduism certainly has a branch. It's like Protestantism, you know. Um, The Protestants have, I was going to say dozens, but it's, it's literally thousands of different types of Christianity. I googled it once, it came up 43,000 types of Christianity, 43,000. So many are non-denominational, and as it should be, I think. Why not? But you got your Baptists and your Methodists and your Lutherans and um, Presbyterians and Pentecostals, and let's not forget the Catholics who really put all of this together 1,700 years ago. Uh, Protestants are still reading a Bible put together by Catholic bishops in the uh, 4th century A.D. So we were distinguishing this chronology of mysticism and how it stands apart from organized religion. And I want to pick up on that a little bit today and talk about American transcendentalism and the New Thought Movement. Then I want to define some terms, as I suggested in the newsletter. Words and phrases and idioms are important because they introduce concepts. So we're not going to just define words. We're, we're going to talk about the concepts behind them. And then what that opens up for you is an opportunity to explore your own beliefs and expand your own understanding and have some really wonderful conversations with uh, people you know, your friends, and maybe family members who have done their reading and who are interested as well. And we'll give you some sources and 
authors and uh, really seminal books that you can that you can read to broaden your base. Remember, we're not. I'll speak for myself. We're not looking for. I said I'd speak for myself, and I use the editorial we. <laughs> I'm suggesting it's best not to look for the one right way, but to harvest what makes sense to you from all these different traditions, all these. And, and, and what is the primary difference between organized religion and mysticism or Buddhist philosophy or Taoist philosophy? It's basically a solo endeavor. Mysticism and Buddhism and Taoism are um, about the experience of following love to its ultimate source and understanding who you are as that consciousness that is often referred to as love. But remember, we're not talking about an emotion, even a a straight-laced, ordinary, just-out-of-school psychologist will tell you love is not an emotion. In fact, love brings up all kinds of emotions, right? From uh, tender and, and affectionate, and we would say a loving an affinity. Uh, happiness is an emotion. But uh, there's basically only four emotions, if you remember our teaching from a few weeks ago. Um, happiness, sadness, anger, and fear. Sometimes they say six. They'll add surprise and disgust. Right? That would be six. But happiness, sadness, anger, and fear... And you have the option of surprise and disgust. Surprise, arguably, is fear. And anything that hurts is rooted in fear. That's the big lesson. So emotional management is an essential part of spiritual growth. That's why most people have such a difficult time with spiritual growth, because they haven't learned to manage their emotions. And If you're doing that, if you've learned to do that and you're working on managing emotions, then you've already begun to move away, in most cases, from organized religion, from dogma and scripture and ceremony, harvesting what makes sense, you know, gathering up what resonates for you is true from all the various traditions, organized religions and such, but moving into a solo effort. That's really... It's my experience that informs me, uh, not some guy who is standing up there um, interpreting for me the richness of all of these spiritual traditions. And again, why go to Baskin Robbins and always get vanilla? Uh, seems to me you could uh, benefit from being adventurous and exploring all the other flavors and (laughs) all the other options available to you. And uh, so, of course, we'll be described as wicked and evil and satanic by uh, the Christians who, for whatever reason, uh, tend to be much more exclusive than the other religions. Most of the other religions religions are pretty mellow about what you study and what you believe and are pretty inclusive, generally speaking, even though tightly organized and devotional. And, and, and yet there's a lot of exclusivity, especially in fundamentalism, 
fundamentalist religion, one right way. And if you disagree, you're very bad, very, very bad. And we'll save a discussion of the Inquisition for later, lopping off heads and burning people at the stake because God loves you. So let's do our opening meditation. What do you say? And then we'll get into class today. Let me just suggest that you get comfortable in your chair or wherever you happen to be seated and uh, close your eyes when you're ready and begin by just becoming aware of your presence in your body. Sort of floating upward as if waking in the morning. And three, eyes open, wide awake. Back in the room, wide awake, eyes open, feeling better, much better, feeling better than before. Eyes open, wide awake. Good. That's a nice lesson. Something I've been pondering this last couple of weeks. Life happens to me, really. We're so judgmental. There's, uh, you know, a lot of literature written, a great deal of admonitions available about not judging. But what's that mean, not to judge? I always think of the traffic light. You know, you roll into, uh, you approach a, an intersection where there's a traffic light and it's green, and then suddenly it turns uh, yellow-orange. And you have to judge. Do I step on the brake or do I roll through the, the intersection? You've, you've, you've got to judge. Judging is for traffic lights. You vote. You go to the polls. You vote these candidates. You've got to judge. You've got to make a decision. It's like so many things in philosophy. Uh, absolutes are difficult to come by. It's often a matter of degree. It's subjective. It's... It's variable. It's relative rather than absolute. Just like desire. We'll be talking in the future about the platitudes in Buddhist philosophy about desire. But of course, the conundrum is if you desire to cease desiring, you've just transferred your desire nature <laughs> to I desire not to desire. We always want something, don't we? But we could be the person that observes ourselves wanting rather than the wanter, you see, <laughs> or the one who desires. Watch that desire. How come it's never fulfilled? How, how come every time we get something we desire, that desire nature is fulfilled for a short time, you get a little dopamine hit, and uh, you feel pretty good about yourself, but pretty quickly... That desire nature goes searching for fulfillment somewhere else. Never enough. Never enough. We do that in relationships. Unless and until we're married. But even then, many people continue to shop around. Wonder if I could do better. I've actually had clients say that to me. Nobody I'm going to identify, obviously, but... I've actually had a few clients say, well, the problem with my marriage is I think I could have done better. You know, they're shopping. 
the the idea of changing themselves like that's something I had to introduce to them. Do you ever consider changing yourself than the whole world? There's a crazy idea. I love the uh, the old Eastern allegory, platitude, story, koan. Not sure what to call it. Story. To avoid injuring your feet on sticks and stones, you could cover the whole world with leather. It's just simpler to wear sandals. Or like the little Dutch boy trying to hold the dike, you know, plug the dike with her finger to hold back the world. It just doesn't seem to occur to us that we could change the way we look at the world and the way we respond to it and stop taking everything so damn personally. Oh, it was done to me. They're angry, so they must be angry. Notice how directional anger is of all the emotions. They're angry at me. Don't use that at me with a lot of them. They're, they're loving at me. They, they're kind to me. Notice how we separate ourselves. It's because of the appearance that we're separate and the world is separate. Not true. Let's pick up where we left off last week, talking about the chronology of the mystical traditions in the world and the philosophies that dovetail with them, like Buddhism and Taoism. Sometimes practiced as often practiced as religion, but not religious. Uh, a philosophy that could be seen as spiritual, because it deals with the invisible and the unseen. It deals with consciousness and awareness. But it's not about worship. There's no worship, uh, per se, in Buddhism. There are these figures, these millions of Buddhas, these fully realized beings in most Buddhist traditions that populate the universe. You can aspire to be that. It's not exactly the same as a Godhead, Father Spirit, much less a personal Savior like Christ. So we touched on shamanism, all around the world, pretty much a consensus that the physical world is animated by an invisible spirit. Uh, thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands. There are graves that have been dated to 150,000 years ago that have flowers on them. 150,000 years ago, there was a reverence for life and a thought that we went to some sort of heavenly paradise afterward, flowers on the grave. So that predates religion and the prophets. And that's what shamanism is and folk medicine. And then we talked about hermetic philosophy and, and uh, the ancient Egyptians and the alchemists and the sun worshipers. This is where monotheism is born. Moses coming out of Egypt and understanding Hermetic philosophy and the Emerald Tablet of Hermes Mercurius Trismegistus. And then uh, Moses, well, he has his own tablets of stone that he brings down off Mount Sinai. The law, he's a lawgiver. 
writes at least five books of what we call the Old Testament, a canon, by the way, that wasn't really settled upon until like two or three hundred A.D., two, two or three hundred years after Christ. Uh, the, the Hebrew Bible, or the so-called Old Testament, is still being canonized, still, still figuring out what do we put in, what do we leave out. And uh, that's about the time that uh, Christians started putting their Bible together, uh, so-called Catholics. Catholic meaning one, meaning unified, meaning whole. But it was put to, you know, it was done by an emperor who, <laughs> Constantine, he wanted to he wanted to create a nation state. He wanted to build an army around religion. And so for hundreds of years, all through the Dark Ages, that's what we have. We have the church state. And the church was the state, and the church ran the show. And uh, we see efforts to do that in the Middle East, the jihadists, the extreme, the Taliban, you know, the extreme right wing of Islam, and we see that in America with the extreme right uh, fundamentalist Christians who want to replace democracy with a theocracy. They want to take us back to that religious state. Well, that's what the Dark Ages were. It wasn't until the 10th, 11th century that universities were created and people began to learn to read and write. That used to be a career. If you were a scribe, if you could write, <laughs> if you could read and write, that was your career because nobody else could until, you know, a couple hundred years ago, really, just a hundred years ago. Public education, people didn't. There are people alive today in America, born and raised in the USA, can't read or write. Didn't need to, just don't need to get out of school, never write another word, never do another thing. Not to mention the Renaissance and how the birth of culture and artwork and music and, and thought and the scientific method, the age of reason, the age of enlightenment just explodes. And along with that, the discovery of some of this old Jewish mysticism, and that's where we get the interest in the Kabbalah, the Tree of Life, and, and Tarot, and the Zohar, and all of these uh, Jewish mystical traditions. And we talked about Christianity and its mystical tradition and Rosicrucianism. And then we, we touched on all the Eastern religions and philosophy, not all of them, but the main ones. And... Uh, you weren't here last week. Go to the YouTube channel, Ageless Wisdom Mystery School, and you can you can see that whole thing. I left out Neoplatonism last week, and I want to touch on that, particularly the 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 writings of a fellow named Plotinus in his book, The Enneads, and a lot of Sufism pulls on Neoplatonism. And I'm not sure Plato would recognize his philosophy in Neoplatonism. But what we begin to see is a mystical tradition, a coming together of uh, people who recognize a universal spirit, an overarching consensus, 
about a single universe, not just a single God that is personified as an old guy on a cloud, which is really idolatry. I hate to step on anybody's toes, but the idea of God as a man is a, a graven image. Remember that Heraclitus quote, or Heraclitus, that we brought up a few weeks ago. If, uh, I think it's pretty provocative. If horses had gods, he said a couple of thousand years ago, if horses had gods, surely they would look like horses. So that we're in the image of God doesn't mean we create God in our image. That's a very fundamental mistake. And that's, that's the problem of separation. If we look around, we say, well, I'm separate. Spend my whole life trying to find love. Didn't know I had it within me. Not really sure that I am made out of this love, that I am this conscious awareness. So I'm looking out here in the world for love because everything is separated and my body is separated and you're separated. And here, let me reach out. You know, just holding hands is quite elegant. A hug is supreme just because we want connection. You hug a tree, that works. Why? Because <laughs> you and the tree are part of one huge magnetic field and everything else is part of one electromagnetic field. We have radio now and and TV broadcast invisible. Oh, I know it comes on the cable too, but still broadcast off the mountaintop, radio and TV invisibly through the ethers. That ought to help with this idea that there is an energy, a spirit, uh, an awareness, a consciousness. And uh, this is where Neoplatonism in the West begins to touch on this mystical idea of monism as opposed to monotheism. And I'll come back to this in just a minute. I want to pick up on the American Transcendentalist, which I didn't get to last week because their contributions are so rich. American, uniquely American Transcendentalism includes great writers like William James. I strongly recommend at some point you read The Varieties of Religious Experience by William James, first published in 1902. It'll wake you up. It's an incredible book. <clears throat> you got to take it in bite-sized pieces. It's some pithy stuff. He was into, he was a medical doctor, into Harvard educated, is interested in physiology, is psychology and philosophy. And this, he was looking for these threads and, and talked at length about consciousness and awareness as an energy, a spirit. William James. And um, he's, he, his philosophy is called neutral monism. Once you become familiar with monism, there are several different kinds, and I'm, I'm not going to get into it. Let's just talk about the mainstream monism, so-called neutral monism, if you want to Google this stuff. As were the other transcendentalists, like, um, oh, Ralph Waldo Emerson. And uh, his student, 
Henry David Thoreau. And uh, my favorite uh, Emerson Thoreau story, by the way, is uh, Thoreau goes to prison in Massachusetts for refusing to pay his war tax. So they just threw him into pokey, right? Don't pay your war tax? Are you kidding? And uh, so Emerson, his, his mentor, his teacher, comes to visit Thoreau in jail. And he says, uh, half-jokingly, um, Henry, what are you doing in there? And Thoreau looked up at him and said, better question is, what are you doing out there? <laughs> in other words, why haven't you, why are you paying your war tax? I learned from you to be a pacifist and a nature lover and to see all things as one. You should be in here with me. So they were transcendentalists. Walt Whitman's poetry, Leaves of Grass, Sing the Body Electric. Sing the Body Electric. Oh my God, do you get it? These are American transcendentalists. And what do you suppose conservative religious people said about these guys? Right? And why they burned their books. Beware of the book burners. Purveyors of fear. Religious people who claim to preach a gospel of love but are in fact purveyors of fear and hellfire and wickedness and damnation scare the bejesus out of you. A little weird. Now I want to talk about some terms, particularly at the top, monism and monotheism and the concepts behind them. And then I want to touch on pantheism and panentheism. Those are two different words. There's an E-N in panentheism. Pantheism, panentheism. It's very important that you understand this. And um, in about five or ten minutes, we'll uh, go to your questions and your comments. And if you just want to put in the chat box to Melinda, uh, I have a comment, I have a question, or... Um, Stated in a sentence or two, if you wish, but rather than raise your hand, I think it's easier if you just put a note in the chat box. We're looking for comments and questions, a little conversation. That's why I don't pre-record all these. That's why I want you guys to be here live, so we can have some uh, exchange, some interaction. So monotheism, as I've mentioned in past classes and even earlier today monotheism you know mono means one theism theology is a reference to religion so it means one god the problem that continues even today is that that idea of one god the monotheistic idea that is prevalent in all three Abrahamic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, is that it puts the Creator as a being, as a limited, I mean, all-knowing, all-powerful, everywhere equally present, and yet 
visualized as a separate being. How could God be separate outside its creation, very far away, petitionable only through prayer, and then only if you did it well? If the idea of divinity is everywhere equally present, it's a contradiction. It's like the contradiction of why does the the devil run hell if it's a place where God punishes you? The devil apparently works for God because it seems to me if the devil was running hell, it would be a festival of depravity. So does the devil work for God? They never, you know, these all... These contradictions are rarely, if ever, addressed. Usually it's enough to get you excommunicated, <laughs> thrown out of the church into the streets for asking these common sense questions. That's the basic problem with monotheism, the idea that religion is supposed to present us with the importance of being ethical and virtuous, and kind, and, and loving, is noble. That's, that's the best part of religion, even if it's somewhat dogmatic and rigid, inflexible, ceremonial, oriented toward ritual, very narrow in what's right and what's wrong. The idea that it is supposed to represent virtue and, and ethics and morality. That's the best, the best thing we can say about it. Story it tells of us being sinners, born in the image of the divine, and yet somehow something about a snake and an apple and Eve disobeyed and she and her boyfriend got run out of uh, Eden. That's all a story of incarnation, of souls incarnating into the world. That doesn't make us bad or evil or needing salvation. Something needs salvation, but maybe it's not the soul. Maybe what needs salvation is our animal nature, the physical body, our lust, our craven nature, our, uh, our animal nature, that, the ego the so-called personality, the multiple roles that we play. I would agree that needs redemption, refinement, salvation, resurrection, ascension, <laughs> moving on up like the Jeffersons. But the idea that the soul is bad and that the soul only indwells, this is another very significant, listen carefully, this is very, very important, Distinction between religion and mysticism, this idea of the indwelling soul. And the church puts itself, organized religion, between the human being and their indwelling soul and the ultimate creative source, the Godhead, the creator, first cause, prime mover, whatever, Godhead, the absolute. That's what a philosopher would say. Church puts itself where your soul should be. Man, soul, God, right? God, soul, man, from the top down. Church 
pulls the soul out, sticks itself in there and says, oh, the soul is stained from original sin and it's inside you. Well, maybe it's not. Maybe it overshadows. And one of the reasons that Emerson is important in American transcendentalism to mysticism, like William James, is they were talking about an oversoul. This is a radical concept that had been forgotten about, even though the early church fathers, Google Origin, uh, before Constantine got all the Catholic bishops together and created this church, there were church fathers, there were these uh, scholars that studied Christianity. There was no Bible to study. There was a bunch of letters and epistles and some writings that came 100 years after Christ that they began to assemble. But many of them, like Origen, believed in the preexistence of the soul, that we are incarnated and incarnated and reincarnated. And the church, one of the first things it did in the Council of Nicaea was banish that teaching of the preexistence of the soul to conform to this idea that you're bad. You're just bad. And you're going to spend eternity in hell if you don't get your butt over to church every Sunday and put some money in the basket. So read The Oversoul by Emerson. And, and just ponder, I'm not telling you what to believe. I'm telling you, you have choices. And one of them is to consider that the soul stands between absolute spirit or energy and the physical material world, your body and the physical dense universe. And we touched on this. Actually, we spent several of our very first classes going over the nature of the Trinity. Not just the Christian Trinity, but the Trinity in all religions. It's basically cause, meaning, and effect, or stimulus, perception, and response. It's spirit, consciousness, and matter. That's the primary one you want to work with. It's Einstein. Energy equals mass. They're the same thing. Everything material, everything solid is really just energy. Well, spirit created matter. I mean, the spirit, the spiritual idea of everything that's physical actually being, you know, of spirit is a religious idea as well as a scientific idea. They don't disagree at all. But the importance of breaking dualism into a non-dual model requires a middle element, that soul in the middle. The intersection of spirit and matter is consciousness. That's the soul. The soul represents consciousness. That's the Christos. That's the Buddha nature between your source and who you are as an effect of all of this. <laughs> the, the secret is in the center. The mystery is always in the middle. Monism recognizes, unlike monotheism, not a separated God living outside of its creation, not a being, but a unified universe, a single energy swirling, spinning, 
currents, eddies, tides of energy, magnetic energy on multiple frequencies, sound, light. Everything is a frequency. Everything is a vibration. That's what energy does. That's what spirit does as a peak and a trough and a yin and a yang and an ebb and a flow and days and nights and seasons and years and to everything there is a season, right? Turn, turn, turn. It starts with the whole idea of spirit vibrating up and down, round and round, like your breath, the in-breath and the out-breath. That's what energy does. That's what spirit does. So monism, neutral monism and its variations, is this idea that we're immersed in the universal ocean of energy. And that in places it condenses into material form. And that becomes very impressive. And you carry the food you've eaten as a physical body. And you bought this furniture. And you drive a car. And you live on an Earth planet. And there's a moon. And uh, asteroids and comets and meteors and interstellar gases and stars and other planets around the stars and galaxies. My God, I'm old enough. When I was a kid, we thought every star in the sky was the universe. We didn't know that <laughs> this was just our galaxy in my lifetime. Somebody looked in a big telescope and said, um, wait a minute, there's other galaxies. That was a mind blower. And now we know galaxies come in clusters. So there's galaxies, there's clusters of galaxies, there's these fibrous strands of galaxy clusters that create super clusters of galaxies, and it goes on to a point where it's just unfathomable, unfathomable, also unpronounceable. Uh, <laughs> it's beyond our ability to comprehend how vast the universe is. But then you're reminded, well, the universe is expanding, and the rate at which it's expanding is accelerating, and now your face melts. Pretty cool stuff. Do not be confused by those who say science and spirituality conflict. It is not true. To my mind, anyway, why would I choose between physical science and metaphysical science and quantum science between physics and metaphysics? It's all part of one thing. It's for us to identify as the awareness, the insight, and the understanding that makes sense of it in a practical way and informs the way we treat each other, the way we organize our lives, and the way we behave. Monism, monotheism, two very different things. And then let me touch on pantheism. Fundamentalist Christians will spit that word out of their mouths, pantheism. Pantheism to most Religious people, especially in the West, 
is the same as paganism. It's basically the idea that God is nature, that divinity is in all things, as scandalous as that may sound, that the rock is sacred, the mountain is sacred, the bottom of the ocean, the ocean is sacred, the fish are sacred, the clouds are sacred, the river is sacred. How could anything exist that is not part of the one thing? Who are we to be separating all of this stuff? based merely on appearance. So the scientist looks a little more closely and says, you know, there's only uh, about a hundred elements, a little over a hundred different elements, that's the best word for it, out of which all things are made. Starting with uh, hydrogen and helium, that's where the universe started. And then it uh, began to cool and coalesce and stars popped out and all of the material in the periodic table is made out of the stars compressing hydrogen into helium into other gases and finally metals and minerals and chemical compounds and you know everything that we have everything that we own was born in a star someplace that exploded and the earth is part of that, and not only the trees that grow from that, and the wood, and the bookshelf, and the paper, and the books, and, you know, the, the material from which our computers and microphones are made, and the cars in which we drive come from that earth, and the bodies that we walk around in are made out of that same stuff. Is it such a stretch to believe that that which is alive, so-called organic, is animated and illumined by an energy? Is that, is that hard to, is that, is that really a big stretch? Two more minutes. I'm going to finish this pantheism, penantheism, and then we'll go to the questions. I'm anxious to hear what you guys have, think about all of this. So pantheism is God equals nature. God is in you and me and the sinner and, and the saint alike, and in the eagle and the snake and the snail and the slug. Look at them carefully. There's nothing ugly of nature. It's all beautiful. That drives uh, religious people crazy. Pantheism. Panentheism, on the other hand. Panentheism. It's very different. Panentheism is pantheism plus the opposite or the complement, which is everything is in the one life. So pantheism is the one life, God is in everything. Panentheism says, yes, that and the opposite. Everything is in God. Whoa, that's a big leap. That means the universe is the body of God. But there could be other universes too, which would still be part of the body of God. So beyond spirit, God's will, there's God's love, and then God's body. And the lower correspondence is our mental, emotional, and physical nature. Ever notice a Catholic, and if you talk to Catholics about this, this will blow their mind, I'm sure. Ask them, why do they touch their forehead when they say in the name of the Father? and their heart in the name of the Son, 
and their shoulders in the name of the Mother, the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, Mother, Holy Spirit. Because it corresponds to God's will, the mental nature in man is the lower correspondence. God's love, the magnetism that unites energy and matter, the consciousness aspect is in the heart. That's our emotional nature in terms of a lower correspondence. And the physical universe, the material universe, the shoulders being the physical body. So our mental, emotional, and physical nature is a lower correspondence of divine will, divine love, and its expression, divine intelligence in the physical world. Go back to the first couple of classes, one, two, and three for more on that. So pantheism is pantheism and the inverse or the reverse or the or the complementary idea. And uh, I'll just leave you with one more related to that, and then we'll go to the questions. Transcendent and imminent. Imminent spelled with two I's means about to happen, pending. It's imminent. Any minute now, it's imminent. There is a word, it's in the big dictionaries, but it's missing from many dictionaries, immanent, which is I-M-M-A. Immanent means innate or inherent or within. So when we talk about imminent and transcendent in all the various mystical fields, it's a reference to everything in the one and the one in everything. That's probably the easiest, most basic way to talk about panentheism. That every seemingly separated object is part of one thing. And that one thing also is in every little bit. Right down to the housefly that you decided to release. Instead of kill. Because it's part of the one life. You see? So, everything in the one, in the one, in everything, that's worth writing down. It's worth pondering. It's worth reflecting on. What if both of those things are true? And remember, high anxiety people are binary thinkers. They would say, well, one of those, only one of those can be true because they're different and seemingly opposite. So, the one, only one can be true and the other has to be false. There's a great truth in paradox. Confucius said all truth is found in paradox. And the more you ponder it, the less paradoxical it becomes. Everything in the one, capital O one, everything is part of the one. And that one is in everything. and ought to be available to us as the wisdom of the soul. 